Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Scott Gowdy, who is a professor of astronomy at Ohio State University. His research focuses on developing and applying ways of searching for planets around other stars, and he has been involved with the discovery of nearly two dozen extrasolar planets to date. Welcome, Scott. Uh, thank you for having me, Gil. Sure, yeah, thanks for doing this. So I want to start with strategy report um, that was um, uh, that was an effort by NSF and and yourself and variety of colleagues uh, in which you say the past decade has delivered remarkable discoveries in the study of exoplanets hand in hand with this advances the theoretical understanding of the myriad of processes that dictate the formation and evolution of planets has matured uh, appreciation of the factors that make a planet hospitable to life has grown in sophistication, as has understanding of the biosignatures, uh, the remotely detectable aspects of a planet's atmosphere or surface that reveal the presence of life. So exoplanet hunting is going on for a while. And, um, and I guess uh, we have now different techniques direct observation to transits uh, to um, to a technique I think you are um, you, you are more uh, uh, interested in which is micro lensing so so could you um, give a, a quick synopsis of the history of exoplanet hunting and sort of the status quo how many have you found so far so uh, yeah sure I'm happy to do that um, I, I won't go all the way back to the prehistory because there were some claim discoveries of exoplanets that turned out to be false back in um, sort of the mid, <laughs> mid uh, of last century. But um, really planet hunting began in earnest um, with uh, in, in the late 80s with uh, radial velocity or Doppler surveys for exoplanets. And um, mostly it came about because of advances in the technology and in particular uh, the CD, CCD camera, which allowed us to uh, digitally record Spectra, uh, spectra for stars 
Um, and as you know, the Doppler shift method uses the um, fact that as the um, planet orbits the star, uh, it actually doesn't orbit the star, it orbits the center of mass. So the, the star comes, is, comes towards you and away from you. So the light from the star is Doppler shifted either to the red or to the blue. And by measuring that, that minuscule little shift, you can actually infer the presence of planets. So uh, to do that, I guess the stars yeah. have, the planets have to be pretty big, right? So definitely the Doppler method is most sensitive to planets that are massive and are in short periods because those induce the largest yeah. uh, Doppler shifts. Yes. Okay. So, okay. Um, so really this started in, um, the story kind of starts with uh, Campbell and Walker, who are two Canadian astronomers at the University of British Columbia. They perfected, a, they uh, started a technique where, um, the, so the issue is not just measuring these lines, but actually uh, referencing them to the, the correct wavelength. Um, and as your, your spectrograph is generally not stable, so that uh, wavelength solution changes, um, which you could are, think it might be due to a planet when it's just the, the, the changes in the properties of the, the instrument, air pressure, temperature, and things like that. So they had the very clever idea of filtering the light through um, a gas and then the, the gas uh, uh, would imprint lines on the spectra, which we know are at rest. And so then you can measure the relative velocities of those spectra. Mm -hmm. So they, they chose an interesting gas, which is hydrogen fluoride, which is colorless, odorless, and tasteless, yet um, is exceptionally poisonous and basically kills upon <laughs> contact. Um, so the, the, the lore is, and I don't know if this is just, uh, this is just, uh, apocryphal is that one of them would be in the, uh, in the, in the, in the main room uh, operating the telescope. And, uh, the other one would be outside with two gas masks looking through. And if something bad happened, they would run in and put the gas mask on. I don't know if that's very true or not, but it's hysterical. So Campbell and Walker surveyed about 50 stars, I believe, and they did find actually some evidence for Doppler variations that could be attributed to planets, but they were very tentative about their result. Um, and in fact, it turns out one of their uh, one of their signals did actually turn out to be due to a planet. Uh, but because they were tentative uh, in, the, in their in their um, interpretation, they aren't really credited as finding the first planets. Hmm. Um, so that that's kind of where things started. Um, and then um, a few other things happened. Dave Latham found with the radial velocity method, something that could have been a brown dwarf. So a failed star, but maybe a supermassive planet, also somewhat tentative. Um, and now we sort of think that that might be a, a real planet. Um, and then uh, Wilson and Frail using the pulsar uh, timing technique, which is very similar to the Doppler technique. You're looking for now pulsars coming towards you and away, for, away from you. But since pulsars are excellent stable clocks, as the pulsar comes towards you, the uh, pulses are, are compressed. And as it goes away from you, the pulses are expanded. Mm -hmm. So by measuring the timing changes of the pulsar, you can infer the presence of body, bodies orbiting the pulsar. And they found two planets orbiting a pulsar. Pulsar, of course, being a, a dead star, the remnants of a, of a dead star, massive star. Um, and, uh, and then later found a third planet around that system. And so that they found the first planetary system, not around a star, but around a, a what we call a stellar remnant, um, which was very exciting. But and, then- and When was that? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, when was that? That was 1993. 1993. Okay, so yeah. Campbell Walker was 89. Uh, Dave Latham was uh, 91. Wilson Farrell was 93. 
And then, and then, and this is the, the really the result that a lot of people know about, and they that really kicked off the field of exoplanets was the discovery of a uh, roughly half Jupiter mass planet orbiting in a period of roughly four days around the star 51 Pegasi by uh, Michel Mayor and Didier Quiroz. And of course, they won the Nobel Prize uh, last year, uh, sharing it with um, equally with uh, J Jim Peebles for his work in cosmology. Um, so that discovery of 51 Peg really launched the field of exoplanets um, and also has kind of threw, uh, threw everything on, uh, on its head because we had long had a model for how our solar system formed. And that model predicted that giant planets should uh, only live in the outskirts of the planetary systems where there's more material to form uh, the cores of the planets, which can then eventually accrete the hydrogen and helium from the protoplanetary disk. But this was a giant planet that somehow had migrated uh, to uh, to very close orbit to its parent star, and as I say, like uh, like uh, retirees migrating to Florida, um, <laughs> and so this this really uh, upended people's way of thinking. It was so surprising that a lot of people thought this wasn't a planet. It was due to some sort of stellar pulsations. We now know definitively that these planets, now called hot Jupiters, exist around one percent of all solar-like stars. So uh, that, and then immediately afterwards, um, uh, Jeff Marcy and Paul Butler, who were performing a similar kind of survey, radial velocity survey, Doppler survey for, for planets, they went and looked, uh, they first acquired uh, data on 51 PEG and were able to confirm that um, that's that Doppler signal and that planet. Um, and then they also looked at data that they had accrued for the past few years and discovers that there were planetary signals in some of those data that they hadn't actually analyzed yet. Um, so then it became this competition between the Swiss group, Didier Queloz and, and Mayor, uh, Michel Mayor, and then Paul Butler and uh, uh, um, Jeff Marcy. And so there was this back and forth and they, you know, this competition. And, and at, at sort of by the um, end of the 90s, I think there were roughly maybe uh, 40 or 50 planets known uh, by the, the Doppler method. Um, so that's, that's, that's kind of the first sort of part of the story. Um, the next part of the story is a very important part. Um, and that was when, um, it was discovered that one of these hot Jupiters, uh, orbiting the star HD 209458 actually passed in front of its parent star once per period. So its orbital plane was aligned with our line of sight. And so it transited in front of that star. And that formed that that enabled you to measure the radius. The Doppler shift allows you to measure the mass of the planet, and therefore you can measure the density. And that conclusively showed that these uh, hot Jupiters were actually gas giants made up of mostly hydrogen and helium. And so that so was the final nail. That's a coffee. bit like an eclipse, right? Uh, it, it is exactly like an eclipse, except yeah. you're in, in a very long distance regime. Right. Um, right. And then, so that was the next, I think, big milestone. Um, and, uh, and that's, this is right about the time when I, I, I stopped being able to remember the names of all the known. <laughs> yeah. So I started graduate school in 1995, uh, just a few months before 51 peg B was announced. Um, and so I, along with the sort of generation of other graduate students, um, grew up with the field of exoplanets. And I, and I, my thesis was actually one of the, the first sort of dozen theses on exoplanets. Um, and uh, so uh, I'll, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about what I was working on during this time, but um, 
Yeah. The next big milestone was in 2002. Uh, the first planet discovered by the transit method was announced. Uh, that, and that was by Kanaki et al. Um, and that sort of opened the door to transit surveys, ground-based transit surveys, finding planets uh, first, and then those being confirmed by the Doppler method. Um, and uh, and like I said, that was about, about the time when I stopped being able to remember the names of all the planets. Um, yeah. So the number of transit... Quick planets, question. Yeah, go ahead. Scott, so on the Doppler method, um, I guess this is also... So when you have a, a system of uh, planets going around a star, um, all of them have some sort of an effect on the star, right? So how yes. do we sort of precisely figure out uh, what the specific effect is for the star, for the planet that we are trying to determine? So in, that's a great question. Um, and in the majority of cases, the, the um, signals don't interfere with each other. So they act, sort of act independently on the radial velocity, their Doppler signal of the star. And so they each have distinct periods. They have distinct amplitudes together, which you can use to estimate the mass of the planet. Now, there are some cases where planets are in what we call resonances, where, for example, every two times... The, uh, one of the planets goes around its star, uh, there's another planet that goes around once. Um, those signals can get much more complicated um, and are, are somewhat more difficult to find. Uh, and we now know of quite a few such systems that, that are in that kind of configuration. But by and large, um, these signals are separable. So just using your regular, regular signal techniques, detection techniques will allow you to detect multiple planets. Okay, okay. Um, so, so, so transit method, yeah. Yeah, so, so the Doppler method ha had, you know, a bunch of success, and then the transit method started um, having success. And, and the, one of the exciting things about transiting planets is you can do lots of great follow-up studies. So um, sort of early, uh, sort of mid-2000s when, was when people started um, doing things like uh, um, detecting the atmospheres of these transiting giant planets, detecting their thermal emissions so we can measure their temperatures um, using things like the Hubble Space Telescope and the Spitzer Space Telescope. Um, and so that's when we really started the, um, the epoch of, of actually being able to characterize in detail the properties of, the, of uh, the atmospheres of these planets. Initially the larger ones, but now we're able to do even smaller ones. Yeah. And so that uh, atmosphere composition through some sort of spectro spectroscopy. Yes, that's that's right. Um, so in, initially, it was um, it wasn't uh, it was just in, in a single uh, a band pass we call it. So it wasn't really spectroscopy, but eventually people were able to use spectroscopy and look for signatures of things like water or methane or things like that in the atmospheres of these planets. Um, which is which, and there's been some pretty exciting results with that, and it's getting ever more sophisticated. The kinds of things we can do uh, with uh, with these kinds of methods. So, how many have we found so far? Um, so, I think the current count is somewhere around four thousand three hundred, um, which is a lot. <laughs> um, and the reason why we have so many planets, one of the primary reasons, is is of course the Kepler Space Telescope. Um, so 
so sort of continuing the thread, there was the, the first 51 peg B discovery by Mayor and Kalos, which ignited the field. First transiting planet, HD 209458B. First planet discovered originally by transits. This was in 2002 or three, I can't remember. Um, then there was the first discovery of a planet by gravitational microlensing, uh, which is what I work on. That was roughly 2006. Um, and then 2000 and, um, seven, I guess it was, the Kepler Space Telescope was launched, which found many thousands of planets and really ushered in the statistical age of exoplanet studies. And, and Kepler is using the transit method or something else? That's right. Kepler uses the transit method. So Kepler, in some senses, was the, was the I mean, it's still there, but it's not operating anymore, was the simplest spacecraft you could imagine. It was just a, a mirror of about um, about uh, a meter in size, slightly smaller in diameter. Um, it had a, a very large camera that, that had lots of CCDs on it, so you could image a large area of the sky. It had one, I think it had no moving parts um, other than the reaction wheels, which turned out to be quite critical. Um, and so basically they blew the cover off the telescope and it just pointed at the same place in the sky for nearly four years and uh, almost continuously and looked for these periodic dips as the planet passed in front of the star. And, as be and because it's from the space, the precision with, with which it could measure the brightnesses of the stars was exquisite. That means they could look for very small dips. And that's when we started finding things like um, things that are smaller than Neptune, uh, with radius smaller than Neptune, all the way down to the radius of the Earth and even below I think the record holder is we discovered a planet that has a radius roughly that of Mercury. Um, so, uh, so, and Kepler found these uh, planets by, like I said, the thousands. They found, uh, Kepler found multi-planet systems, many multi-planet systems. They found systems of, of planets orbiting uh, that where one planet orbits a, a bina binary star. These are circumbinary planets. Lots of exotica that Kepler found and really helped us to understand the what I call the demographics of, of relatively short period planets with periods less than roughly 100 days. Um, and and microlensing is a third technique. So, right. so, so how, how exactly does that work? So it's uh, it uses the fact that um, that the mass has uh, mass actually bends light, the gravity gravity bends light. Uh, yeah. as predicted by uh, uh, Einstein's theory of general relativity. Um, and so what you do is you just stare at a very distant star uh, for long enough. If you do that, eventually another star that's not related to that star that's in the foreground will pass very close to your line of sight to that background star that you're monitoring. When that happens, it will the gravity of that foreground star will actually split the light into two images um, and which will, uh, which, which you actually can't really distinguish. We have in actually one case, but we generally can't because they're, they're separated by such a small angle. Um, but the background star itself is actually magnified. So as the st foreground star comes into alignment and then goes out of alignment, we see the background star get brighter and then fainter. And this was actually a phenomenon that was predicted by Einstein, I think in 1932, or it was the paper was published, um, where he famously said this would never be observed. <laughs> We've now observed tens of thousands of microlensing events. And the way we use it to find planets is if this foreground star happens to have a planet, 
that has a separation close to where these images pass by the foreground star, then that gravity of that planet, because uh, it has mass and gravity too, will actually also bend the light a little bit and magnify it or demagnify it, and but with a much shorter duration. And that's the signal that we use to find planets with microlensing. And because these images are passing at roughly um, several times the distance of the Earth from the sun from their parent star, microlensing is naturally complementary to the radial velocity and transit method, which are sensitive to short period planets. Microlensing, on the other hand, is sensitive to longer period planets, and in fact, even sensitive to planets not bound to any host star because those planets have gravity and can create their own microlensing events. So, so the foreground star is needed uh, because it, it's basically bending the oncoming light, and then you're looking for some sort of differential bending on that already bent light. Right. Uh, so, yeah, you see the background star get brighter and fainter, but then for a brief period of time, anywhere between a few hours and a few days, you see a deviation from what you'd expect if that foreground star was, was by itself. Um, and you and that signature is is you can attribute to the planet, and then you can learn something about the mass ratio and the separation of the planet from its host star. Okay, and so the forty three hundred that we found uh, by a variety of techniques, um, how does the demographics of that look like in terms <laughs> of size and and uh, I guess size is a big part, but also temperature and so on. Right, so that's a great question, and, and, and it's actually a very, a very timely one because I and uh, my and two uh, collaborators, Jesse Christensen, who's been heavily involved in the Kepler uh, anal analysis of the Kepler data, and Michael Meyer, who's basically works on everything in exoplanets, we just uh, wrote a review on the demographics of exoplanets. And actually, there was just a conference last week on yeah. the demographics of exoplanets. Um, so this is a hot topic now because uh, we now have enough planets that we can actually start doing demographics. Right. I think of this yeah. as like a survey, a census, um, whereas you're not doing a deep dive on any individual planetary system, but you're sort of, it's like the two page assay of, you know, how many people are in your household, you know, and what are their ages. In this case, what we're typically looking for is the distribution in the, in the plane of the mass of the planet versus its period or the radius of the planet versus its period. And if you look at the plots like that, um, you see some interesting things. Um, one is um, that there's a population of sort of warm uh, or cold Jupiters, which with masses between one and 10 Jupiter masses and separations relative to their parent star that are uh, between a few and five times the separation of Earth from the sun. You see the population of hot Jupiters that are in periods of a few days and have sizes that are roughly that of Jupiter. Actually, some of them are quite inflated up to twice the radius of Jupiter, which is a so still unsolved problem as to why they're inflated, although there's great theories. And then you see this enormous population of planets discovered by Kepler that have radii somewhere between that of the Earth and that of Neptune and periods less than 100 days. So these are called super Earths or mini Neptunes. Um, and we now yeah. know that these are the most common kind of planet in the galaxy. And what's fascinating is we have absolutely no analog of, to a plant, these kinds of planets in our solar system, both in terms of their size and mass and in terms of where they're lo located. Hmm. So the, the warm Jupiter is, um, it, there is no big puzzle there, right? So 5 AU 
Um, I guess only puzzle is some of them are really sort of inflated. That's the, the ones in 5AU tend to not be inflated, although we don't have a lot of measurements of radii of those because they're very unlikely to transit. It's the ones that are very close and that are being bombarded by the stellar radiation um, yeah. that are inflated. And somehow that energy is actually being deposited in the planet um, and causing it to inflate. It's exactly what physical processes is, is doing that is what is up for debate. The warm Jupiters don't present too much of a problem. We don't think we think that um, we think that they can form in radii that are separations that are slightly larger than that, and then they might migrate in a little bit. The real question that we have is why did in our solar system was there no large scale migration of the giant planets? We know there was some, uh, and the current popular theory is that Jupiter sort of moved in uh, a little bit and then moved back out. We know Neptune moved out because it had trapped a bunch of small bodies like Pluto in resonances that I talked about before. Um, the real question is why is it in some systems we have large scale dynamical migration and quite chaotic uh, uh, migration in the sense that you get things with very large eccentricities and we suspect, although won't know until Gaia tells us that have large mutual inclinations, and some end up, you know, parked very close to their parent star, whereas our solar system seemed to have a much more quiescent history. And why that is, we don't really know. Um, and that's part of why we do these demographic surveys is because we think the physics and planet formation and evolution will be imprinted on the final distribution of planets in these parameter spaces that I mentioned. So um, I guess the earlier techniques couldn't really discover Earth-sized planets, right? So we have a lot of super-Earth-sized planets uh, to the size of Neptune, uh, but with higher sensitivity and better techniques, and now we can measure or we can uh, potentially discover Earth-like planets too, right? Earth, I would say we have the potential to discover Earth mass or Earth radius planets. But yeah. if, if you require the Earth-like to be actually at the, at the sort of uh, either separations or more appropriately, the sort of irradiation levels, the kind of amount of light, they, uh, energy they receive from their parent stars, that region of, 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 of planet mass radius and separation is actually at the sort of nadir of all the detection methods. It's the most difficult kind of planet uh, for us to detect with our current techniques. Um, which is some sort of cosmic, you know, <laughs> cosmic <laughs> joke if you think about it, right? Is that yeah? That's why I say God has a sense of humor. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, um, so Kepler was designed to actually find exactly Earth analogs, but because, and I, I mentioned, I, I alluded to this before, because its uh, its uh, reaction wheels failed, two of the reaction wheels failed. It only had two left. Um, it wasn't actually able to point at this location for more than uh, about a three, three and three quarters years, where it was planning on pointing at that location for six years. Um, and because of that loss of time, it actually didn't quite get to the sensitivity to detect Earth analogs. So our estimate of, of planets like the Earth orbiting stars like the Sun is based on extrapolation. And this is a famous number called Eta Earth. Um, so we have an estimate of it, but it's based on extrapolation. And it's quite important to actually know this number because if we want to plan future space-based missions, which maybe we'll get to later, that can actually directly image these planets and uh, get spectra of them and look for signatures of, of habitability and maybe even life, uh, we have to know how common they are. 
We'll take a we'll take a quick break, Scott, and when we come back, we'll talk about exactly that okay. uh, habitability and and what the future plans might be. All right, sounds great. Yeah, talk to you soon. This is a Scientific Sense podcast, providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we are back, uh, Scott. Uh, we have been talking about exoplanets, extrasolar planets, planets around other, other stars. And um, the exoplanet hunting, so to speak, started uh, in the 90s. And um, different techniques uh, have been used to, uh, to, to find them. Uh, and uh, over the years, last uh, 30 years or so, we have found 4,300 and counting of exoplanets of variety of sizes, masses, and periods around their stars. And um, the age-old question of whether any of them uh, is habitable, could be habitable, has life, all those questions uh, still exist and, uh, and still very interesting to think about. So uh, um, in one of your papers here, the Habitable Exoplanet Observatory, HabX, mission, is that something that is being designed now or it's already got going? Uh, neither. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a wish, I would yeah. say. <clears throat> so NASA, uh, so every t 10 years, the astronomical community self-organizes with the help of the National Academy of Sciences and uh, does what's called a decadal survey. So the most prominent members of the field, they get together, they solicit input from the community, they take that input, filter it, and then, and then they try to determine priorities for NASA, the National Science Foundation, and the Department of Energy for astronomy over the next 10 years. And typically, they often um, prioritize a large space-based mission for NASA. So, um, for example, the James Webb Space Telescope was prioritized by one of the decadal surveys, as was the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope was prioritized by the 2010 decadal survey. We'll get back to that later. Um, and so now we're going, to, we're going through the, 20, uh, uh, the Astro 2020 decadal survey, and it's happening as we speak. Um, the input has mostly been gathered. Um, the subpanels have mostly written their reports, and now the big uh, main panel, the steering committee, um, need to assemble all that information and then pr uh, provide their priorities. In preparation for the 2020 decadal survey, NASA uh, ish, uh, basically started four studies for large mission concepts that would be submitted to the decadal survey and cons perhaps considered as maybe one of their top priorities. Um, so there's one is the far infrared surveyor, which is now called Origins. The other is the uh, X-ray surveyor, which is now called Lynx. And then there's two missions that are very similar in sort of the science, uh, the science goals, but very different in scope. Um, so one of them is the Large UV Optical Infrared Surveyor, or LUVOIR, uh, which has the dual science goals of one, to actually be able to detect and characterize 
Earth-like planets orbiting sun-like, the nearest sun-like stars, look, take their specta, spectra, look for signatures of habitability and life, um, and also do an, a, a very wide range of uh, extragalactic and galactic astronomy um, using a very large aperture telescope. Um, so you can think of this as, as a super, super Hubble. So they consider this something that's the, roughly the size of 15 meters in diameter. So that's much bigger than Hubble. And they also considered a more diminutive uh, nine meter diameter, which is still, you know, a little less than five times uh, out of Hubble. The HabEx, again, had similar science goals, both to look for, to try to detect and characterize Earth-like planets around sun-like stars, to look for habitability and life, and also to do a wide range of, of, of uh, other kinds of science, um, galactic, extragalactic, et cetera. Um, but with uh, on a smaller scale, so the the aperture of Habex is four meters compared to the two point four meters of Hubble. Yeah. Um, so it's even actually smaller than JWST, but it's operating at a different wavelength and actually largely complements Hubble. So you can think of it as the next Hubble, whereas you could think of Lubar as sort of the the big leap after Hubble. Um, so th so the, the, these mission concepts were developed over the course of almost four years. Uh, we submitted our final reports um, sort of at the near in August of last year. We uh, presented them to the Decadal Survey at the, in the fall of last year. Um, and now we're waiting to see what the Decadal Survey has to say and see if it uh, prioritizes one uh, uh, of these missions uh, to, as the major uh, mission to go forward in the 2020s. Um, so uh, there are mission concepts that that we, you know, I personally hope one of the, one of them will be picked. And of course, since I was the co-chair of the Habex study, along with Sarah Seeger at MIT, um, I'm a little I'm a little biased <laughs> towards Habex. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, so so this idea that we want to look for Earth-like planets around sun-like stars. Uh, we have sort of a, a, a defined habitable zone, right? Um, right. Where water is present. We need uh, rocky planets. So these characteristics are all based on an end of one <laughs> observation. Right. Um, is that the right way to think about it? Or uh, could we sort of expand that definition? Uh, so that's an excellent question, and it's one that uh, that often comes up in these sorts of th things. Um, so I, you know, there's there's lots of ways to answer that question. Of course, you don't want to restrict yourself to just what you know, right? Yeah. Uh, but then again, um, if I so I like to paraphrase a, 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 a something that my colleague and department chair David Weinberg says. You know, if I asked you to look for a dog. Um, you probably have a pretty good idea of how to go about doing that and what to look for. If I asked you to look for a not dog, that might be a little bit harder, right? But, so uh, so you, we look for what we know. Uh, now, there's, there's actually very good reasons to think that um, that uh, life, if it arises, it might, it might arise on something like the Earth. Like you said, a rocky planet with a thin atmosphere. Um, but uh, that that can actually at the right separation where it can have liquid water on the surface. Um, all life as we know it requires liquid water. Um, water is uh, is very abundant because the two most common elements that like to play with other elements and bond with other elements are hydrogen and oxygen, uh, which is obviously, obviously the building blocks of, of water. Um, and so there's so there's really good reasons to think that you know this might be the most easy channel for life to arise. Hmm. Now, um, 
we don't know really the habitable zone. We can make educated guesses of, of what range of separations you can have liquid water, but it depends on your atmospheric composition and lots of other stuff. So the way we look at it in the HabEx mission is that we're, we're looking for something that we know, right? Yeah. We can, let's at least look for the, uh, test the hypothesis of are there things like the earth where we know life can arise? And um, rather than being honing in on just one area, what we really want to do is empirically try to define the habitable zone. So we're going to look at planets not just in the habitable zone, but proximate to the habitable zone and see if we, there, we can de define by actually using observations what kind of planets might be habitable and might even have signatures of life. Um, if, should we be thinking about other kinds of, of habitable worlds? Absolutely, and people are. Um, and the astrobiologists are very clever. Um, I think a lot of them worry about false positives, like something where we say we think we found life where it's actually being, um, some molecule is being formed abiotically and we're fooled. Um, but they also think about other kinds of life, um, silicon-based life, methane-based solvents, um, those kinds of things. Yeah. There's a variety of reasons why those kinds of lives don't, that kind of life doesn't seem as probable. So for example, methane, is only liquid at um, relatively cold temperatures at a relatively very uh, narrow range of temperatures where um, chemical reactions aren't very quick. Um, if you wanted to build life out of instead of carbon, silicon, silicon uh, does have similar chemical properties of carbon because it's just one row down on the periodic table, but in the same column. But silicon has other things that are bad, like the most common element that silicon would bond with um, is likely to be oxygen, and it would form silicon dioxide, which of course is sand, um, and also not very good for making life. So there are good reasons to look for carbon-based life with, with, uh, that uses um, water as a solvent. Um, but, but of course, we should, we should be thinking more broadly than that. So I, I would say that our approach is to look where we know uh, life can arise. And then uh, if we don't find anything, then we look other places. And of course, Concurrently with this, we should be looking for life in our own solar system as well, in Europa, Enceladus, Mars, Which one, et cetera. Um, one of the moons, uh, was it Jupiter or Saturn, has uh, methane in liquid form, right? So Titan, Titan. actually, it's funny. Yeah. I just gave a lecture on Titan uh, today to my students, my inter uh, major astronomy students. Yeah, so Titan is the only other body in the in the solar system that we know of that has a hydrological cycle. But in the case of my Titan, instead of water being the the um, the the major constituent of the hydrological cycle, it's liquid methane. Yeah. So Titan has liquid methane lakes, um, and and has me methane evaporates and it rains and you know the whole cycle that like we have on the Earth. So it's actually quite a fascinating world. It's not super uh, promising for habitability, um, but uh, but nevertheless, is a very interesting world. There was something in the news, uh, Scott, I can't quite remember, maybe 20 years ago in a lake in Arizona or someplace like that, somebody thought they found an arsenic-based life. <laughs> I think that, was, uh, uh, that wasn't true. Um, do you remember that? I, yeah. I do not remember that. Um, I, I remember a few sort of false alarms, including the Allen Hills meteorite, although <laughs> right, yeah. some people still believe that that, that was the evidence of past life on Mars. Um, yeah, I mean, so, uh, you know, this is a, this is a, it's a, science is a process. I think that's 
people, you know, a lot of people that aren't scientists forget that. And we make mistakes. Um, and the whole reason we do this is that we make hypotheses and make observations. And then someone can go and either confirm those observations or refute them. Yeah. Um, and that's how we move forward. Uh, and uh, and so an excellent example of this is the discovery of possible discovery of phosphine in the atmosphere of Venus. Um, and as you you know you know that that it was originally suggested by the authors that the most probable um, uh, source of this phosphine was life in the upper atmosphere of Venus. And then we're now currently in the process of testing to see if the signal is real, um, imagining if there's other abiotic ways of forming phosphine. Again, we're moving on. We're this is how science works. Um, and I don't know how it's going to turn out. It's a fascinating story. I'm not directly involved. I'm just yeah. kind of paying attention as a very interested bystander. So the CapEx mission is important in many ways, right? So you are dog and finding a dog or not dog is, is, is important because suppose, I mean, let me ask you this. Suppose you find 100 Earth-like planet, planets around sun-like stars um, that has all the characteristics, uh, has water, has rocky surface, has been around for a few billion years, let's say, add that to the characteristic, and then we find no life in them, or hundred of them. Uh, wouldn't that, um, we have to then update our, uh, I would say, enthusiasm for, for looking out for life, right? I mean, right now, the argument goes something like there are billions of possibilities out there and it has to be there. Uh, but if we don't find in hundred of similar environments, that should tell us something different, right? I think I think that's the that's right. Um, I, I should mention, in all fairness, that that Habix, uh actually won't be able to find a hundred Earth-like planets uh, based yeah. on what we know. Luvoir might. Um, because it's a much larger aperture and much more capable and also much more expensive and technologically difficult. Um, these things go hand in hand, obviously. Um, so Habex is sort of the first step. Uh, but, um, but even Habex, you know, if we don't find anything, if we find things that look like they're, for all the world, habitable, they have water vapor, carbon dioxide, um, rally scattering indicating an atmosphere, um, ozone, or sorry, not ozone, um, uh, Anyway, all those constituents that said, yeah, this looks like a potentially habitable world, but we don't find any oxygen, for example, mm -hmm. which is considered a biosignature. Um, and that's true of, you know, all of the planets that we find that are in the proximate to the habitable zone. I think that we would, you know, that tells us something, tells us something very interesting. I think the argument goes, right, is that life on Earth from uh, geological records basically arose as soon as it possibly could. Right. Um, as soon as the, the stopped having, you know, basically sterilizing impacts, there's evidence of past life. Now, complex life took a lot longer to form. Um, so the, the, the argument, and again, it's a, it's a sample size of one, um, but the argument is that maybe life, simple life is, is relatively easy to form, um, but more complex life is more difficult. Um, but again, it's a sample size of one. Um, and I think it would change our overall perspective Right. So, uh, if we did find that there's lots of potentially habitable planets, but not very, not but few, if any, that are actually habitable. And um, and, you know, it, it, I think these kinds of studies are not just scientific, but they're also philosophical in a way. Right. right. Why do we do this? We you know, we kind of want to understand our context and whether or not 
you know, we're unique and, and, and different or whether or not there's, you know, abundance of, of life out there. Yeah. Yeah. Like you said, we don't know the answer, but finding either answer, I think has relevance. And I so, think it would be, yeah. either one would be pro profound. Yeah. Um, if we found life was ubiquitous, that would be very interesting. If we found out that we were cosmically lonely, um, that would be also very interesting. Right. Right. Yeah, I want to jump into, uh, you mentioned this, uh, the, the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope. So that's a recent renaming, I guess, of the telescope, right? right. Uh, yeah, so that was, you know, that was originally the w, the Wide Field Infrared Survey Telescope, or W-FIRST. W-FIRST, okay. So this is another galactic exoplanet survey, and you, you're talking here about free-floating planet, uh, planet detection. Um, First of all, so so what's the motivation behind uh, free-floating planets to start with? Uh, right. So first, just a just a little bit of, yeah. of uh, background. Um, the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope is a is a telescope that's the size of Hubble, um, but has a much larger field of view, roughly a hundred times the field of view. So that means it can ma map large areas of the sky quickly or smaller areas of the sky, but over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And the latter is what we were going to do with it to, to use the microlensing method to find what we hope is thousands of planets um, in, a, in the very complementary region of parameter space than Kepler. So we're going to try to fill out this demographic survey of, uh, and combine it with Kepler to measure the frequency of planets with radii and masses greater than the Earth, and separations from zero to basically infinity from their parent star, including free-floating planets. Mm. Why do we think that free-floating planets might be out there? Well, one is that we have some tentative evidence from ground-based microlensing surveys, which are not as sensitive as Roman will be, uh, but nevertheless have found a population of very short timescale microlensing events that seem like they're probably due to free-floating planets. And in fact, one recent announcement was it most likely mass was roughly that of the Earth, hmm. which is quite fascinating. Theoretically, there's lots of reasons to believe that free-floating planets, especially low-mass free-floating planets, might be common. I told you before that we know that in a lot of systems, planet formation was very messy. It was chaotic. Yeah. The planets moved around a lot. And that process just naturally ejects a lot of, pla of small planets. Hmm. The, the big planets stay because they have more mass, but they basically kick out a bunch of uh, small planets. This pro process was almost certainly ubiquitous. And by measuring the frequency of these free-floating planets, especially the low-mass ones, we can get a sense of basically how messy planet formation is in general in the galaxy. So, so it could be planets as we know it. It could also be uh, fairly massive um, asteroid-type things too, right? Yeah, so those would be things that are the mass of asteroids or even the mass of something like Cer uh, like the largest asteroid, like Ceres yeah. um, or Pluto. Those those are going to be very tough to detect, okay. even with Roman. Um, but um, but but we think that, you know, so basically planet formation is, you know, it's it's construction. We think it's a bottom up kind of scenario. You smart, start with small things. You build bigger things, but just like any construction site, as the as the building is near nearing completion, there's just a bunch of debris all over the place, and that debris eventually just either gets thrown, uh, impacts the planets th that are there, or gets ejected from the system, and that's going to be everything from pebbles to asteroid-sized things, maybe even things as big as Mars or Earth. 
Um, and that's the kind of that's what we would kind of look for. And by measuring the mass function of these things, we can learn something about how the planet formation scenario works, whether most systems uh, were really very messy and threw a bunch of stuff out um, or were more quiescent like we think our solar system formation was. Yeah, so you say here, so we show that Roman will be sensitive to uh, masses uh, around 0.1 the size of Mars to gas giants greater than 100 times the size of Mars. So right. 0.1 uh, mass of Mars, that's a reasonably small body, right? It's roughly the mass of the moon. Oh, mass of the moon, okay. Yeah. So, so we could actually detect something like the moon out there. Yeah, so one of the great things about microlensing is we could detect that things that are roughly roughly twice the mass of the moon, um, either bound to their host stars or or um, or free floating. Although the free floating ones are much harder, um, they would have to be pretty common for us to detect many of those. Um, but in principle, we could detect systems like the Earth Moon system. And one interesting thing is that studies uh, from uh, 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 Graduate student in Cornell, whose name is escaping me, unfortunately, showed that actually when Earth planets, if you have an Earth-sized planet, mass planet with a moon, and that gets kicked out by, say, a Jupiter, um, often it'll take its moon with it. Um, so we could imagine free-floating planets with moons, which is actually quite quite an interesting <laughs> idea. Um, and we might be able to, to be sensitive to those with Roman. So when these things are ejected, I mean, it's obviously a variety of speeds, but do we have an understanding of what speed they might travel? They they're basically ejected at the orbital velocity that they had. So oh. it's uh, it's it's you know they're not ejected with an enormous amount of energy. Um, so that we expect them to have velocity distributions that are basically similar to the stars in our galaxy, okay. maybe a little bit larger. Yeah. So so you are trying to convince um, that the funders that Habex is, is a good idea. Uh, so right. in conclusion, uh, I want to ask you, Scott, so as you design this, and, and you have done a lot of work in the area of exoplanets, you have seen all sorts of different things there, uh, different characteristics. What's your general sense of habitability? Uh, <laughs> if you were to speculate, uh, is it, you know, that, that I hear from people on both ends of the spectrum, uh, some say it's a, it's a no-brainer that you know it, it should be all over the place, and others say that it's so complex, you know, uh, we don't know zero divided by or zero multiplied by infinity what that is. <laughs> right. It's an undefined thing. So, so where, where do you where do you come out on that? So I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna cheat a little bit and give you two answers. Yeah. So um, I so before COVID, I used to spend a lot of time on airplanes, um, <laughs> and uh, and occasionally, you know, the person next to me would try to strike up a conversation, and inevitably, if we they did, and I, and I always say, if I feel like talking, if I don't feel like talking, I'll tell them. Uh, eventually, they'll tell me, ask me what I do. Yeah. If I don't feel like talking, I'll tell them I'm a physicist and the conversation ends there. Um, <laughs> I do feel like talking, I'll tell them I'm an astronomer. And then, you know, nine times out of 10, their eyes light up. Yeah. And inevitably in the course of the conversation, they ask me, you know, do you think there's life out there? Right. Are we alone? Right. And my answer as a scientist has to be, I don't know, right? right? That's what a scientist will tell you. And then of course they say, well, yeah, 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 yeah. But what do you think? <laughs> okay. And I answer, you know, I don't know, but I'm trying to find out. Yeah. So that's my science. That is my astronomer official science answer. Right. If you ask me as a person, not as an astronomer, do I think that there's life out there? 
Um, I think yes. I think it would be it would be the the there's just so many opportunities. We know planets. We know we know there's lots of stars. We know that carbon and water is very common. We know now that planets are just everywhere. Every rock you turn over, there's a planet. Um, and nature is just way more imaginative than we are. And I just can't imagine that we're living in a universe where we are the only uh, we are the only planet where not only simple life but also complex life arose. So that's what I would say as a non-scientist. But especially my official stance as a scientist is I don't know. Yeah. So so yeah. So there are two questions: uh, life itself and complex life. Uh, right. Now the the Fermi paradox and and related arguments say that if you reach some level of complexity, some level of technological sophistication, it doesn't take that long uh, to right. colonize the the galaxy. But we don't right. have evidence of that happening, right? And so well, depending yeah, on who you depending ahead. on who you ask, right? Sorry. <laughs> So depending on who you ask, there are definitely people that believe that we've been visited by aliens. I am not one of them, but yeah, that's right. That's right. Just they might they might just take a flyby and say, yeah, it doesn't. It's not worth it to go down there. Especially if they flew by in 2020, they're like, nope, we're just going to pass the floor right by. That's right. Let the elections get over, and then you know we might. Uh... Right. So yeah, I mean, it is. It, it's an interesting question. Still remains to be. Uh, why we haven't we haven't found anything? Colon colonization of the galaxy um, hasn't happened. At the very least, I think we can say that, right? I I, I think it's pretty clear. And, and if it has happened, it's happened in a way that uh, that is that been designed so that uh, primitive civil civilizations like ours can't actually figure it out. But um, uh, that, I would say that's true. The Fermi paradox is is actually troublesome. If you really believe that complex life, intelligent life, uh, you know, must have uh, existed, um, and because you know, there's not, there's not a lot of ways out of it. Um, the most promising one that I think of is what's called the zoo hypothesis, which is kind of like uh, the prime directive in Star Trek. Right? Mm -hmm. Is that we don't, we're not going to let, we're not going to bother the 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 nascent young civilizations because we don't want to, you know, affect their, their evolution. Right. Um, but, uh, but it is, it's, it, it's a, it's a real, it's a real issue. It's a real uh, head scratcher. Um, why, if it's so easy to colonize once you reach a certain level of technological sophistication, why haven't we seen any evidence of that? Yeah. I mean, if the standard model holds, then, you know, that the space time, um, corridor that we can explore is highly limited. And so, uh, yeah, right. go ahead. I mean, it, it's, it's limited in the sense, well, so, I mean, the, the basic, the crux of the Fermi paradox is that, um, is that, you know, eventually, and so, I mean, the, we've been technologically advanced, if you call us technologically advanced, <laughs> for a few months, for a hundred years or something like that, That's which right. is a blink of the eye, right? Yeah. Um, if we manage to make it for another thousand years, 10,000 years, even 10,000 years is nothing, right? right? But imagine 10,000 years where we might be technologically, then it, it's not even now, right now, it's not even that ridiculous to think that we could um, design a spacecraft that would allow us to get to the nearest planetary system like Proxima SNB. And then, you know, then it's just a question of developing the civilization there. Each civil civilization sends out two, two other um, 
colonization probes, yeah. you know, and then you start to get into this geometrical argument. And that's the crux of it is that, you know, two times two time, you know, two to the squared to the squared, you know, you start to build up pretty fast. Right. Um, so, you know, so, and, you know, the galaxy has been around for sort of 10 billion years. So, um, there's there've been lots of opportunities for that, and exactly why you know, um, and you know it might just be that civilizations just decide that it's not a very good thing to do. Hmm. It's kind of counter to everything that we know about uh, mankind or humankind. Right. Um, we're definitely explorers at heart, uh, but you know maybe there we learn something when we cross some edge of uh, of development that we say you know actually it's best to stay at home. Who knows. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. So the, the objective function that we, we sort of assume may be faulty, right? Um, right. You know, exploration right. and acquisition uh, may not be, <laughs> may not be uh, factors uh, in a very right. highly technologically advanced civilization. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's some evidence that, that this might already be happening, right? I mean, if there is... Um... There are lots of arguments now and that are becoming and these voices are getting stronger and stronger that, you know, eternal economic growth is is neither possible nor a good thing. Right. Um, and this is related to things like climate change and things like that, that maybe we want a steady state kind of situation. And maybe that's actually, you know, the, that's actually the, the, the optimal uh, uh, endpoint of a civilization is some sort of steady state, not constantly exploring and constantly you know, manifest destiny taking over um, other planets. Right. Who knows? But one sort of yeah. counter argument that just to close this up is that at some point in about four and a half billion years, we had better figure out how to get off this rock. <laughs> right. because the sun is just not going to let us live on it anymore. It was, right. No matter what we do. Yeah. Right. So eventually we're all going to be living around, huddled around little fires of M dwarfs at very, very small separation. <laughs> Like uh, like Trappist one, you know, that lived for ten trillion years, right. uh, because you know that's that's the, all of the sun-like stars will have been long gone by that, you know, after after about a trillion years. So yeah, I mean, even even tactically, I, I guess the expectation is that the sun will blow up into a red giant in about four billion years, right? Uh, about the orbital, the diameter will be the orbit of the Earth, so Earth will be consumed by that. So yeah, so gone, there's right? arguments about whether Earth will actually be consumed or it'll just barely escape. Well, but it doesn't right. actually matter because, you know, we're going to be burned to a crisp long before that happens. Right. The prediction is that within two billion years, we're going to have a runaway greenhouse and we're going to end up like Venus. So, right. um, so you know, there are theories that we could just move the orbit of Earth uh, uh, out by uh, exchanging angular momentum with asteroids. Um, which I think is a, a, a very amusing <laughs> idea. And what I always say is this is not something you want to sell to the lowest bidder. <laughs> so Yeah, CAVEX. So CAVEX is important uh, from, I, from I many different perspectives. Yeah, I think it's just, so we, we've, I, I, I like to say this, but I think it's, and it's a little hokey, but it's true. We've reached this very critical point in our civilization, in our technological advancement and our scientific knowledge, where for the first time in our generation, um, we might actually be able to go and look for life on other planets around other stars um, within the next 20 or 30 years. Um, and, um, and, you know, it, it, it seems inevitable to me, you know, just even despite all of the chaos that's happening in the world and all the other things that we need to do to make sure that humanity actually makes it through this kind of 
uh, juvenile state that we're in right now, that we will do this, right? I mean, it just, and, and the cost of it is not that high, right? right. The cost of Habix is something like of order an aircraft carrier. Um, so, you know, compared to the, the defense budget, it's minuscule. Now, there's lots of arguments like we should be spending this on clean water and converting to renewable energy. And I buy all those arguments, but I think as soon as we stop as a civilization seeking knowledge for knowledge's sake, we're on the way down. Um, and so I think that it is, it is both important um, for humanity to continue on with these kinds of, of, of investments, not just in looking for life, but all this pursuit of knowledge in general. Um, and uh, and I, I just think it's it's a profound question that that sort of lingers in everyone's mind. Um, like I said, every almost everyone I know that I meet um, and they find out an astronomer, they almost <laughs> always ask me this question: Is there a life out there? Are we alone? Right, right. Excellent. This has been great, Scott. Thanks so no, much I for spending time with me. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks. Bye. Bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.